Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Good evening and welcome to Breaking the Silence. I'm Greg. You're welcome into my home. We're looking outside the window here over the Texas Medical Center, the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas. And it's awesome to have you here on the Sunday following Thanksgiving. We are live around the world tonight. And sometimes in live radio, uh, something happens to where the guest doesn't call in yet. I have nothing prepared. So I told the beautiful people of BBS Radio that I will come on and trust and have faith that within the next five minutes, uh, our guest from Chicago is going to phone in and we'll get him passed in to be able to talk to him about the book that he has written. And I have been researching, reading, and watching uh, everything about this book all, all day. Uh, and thoroughly was excited about getting ready to uh, speak to him. Matter of fact, I didn't write any of my normal, what I learned this week, uh, prelog uh, as the intro, because I wanted to give him the full hour. And wouldn't you know that this would be the day that it doesn't show up. Um, but that happened. So no problem, no stress. No uh, situations here. I can, it takes me 10 minutes to say uh, hello. So I'm in that hello mode. If you want to get involved tonight, if you want to call, we're going to run about the next five minutes uh, to see if the guest does log in and uh, phone in so we can actually patch him in to see him and talk with him this evening. And if not, within about 8, 10, 8, 12, a uh, few minutes uh after about 10 minutes into the program, we will probably cut and go to a pre-recorded uh, interview at an earlier date. Uh, but we're going to give it the next three or four minutes because we are live. If you want to get involved, you just want to call me tonight and say, hi, Greg. I would love to talk to somebody this evening. You can do that at 888-627-6008. And you can call right into the radio station and we can talk, uh, chat. As a matter of fact, we can do that for about 50 minutes, to be honest with you, if you want to. Uh, or you can also get on the Shattered by the Darkness, and we have people on there already. Um, Shattered by the Darkness uh, Facebook page that my son is running. I believe he's in Japan right now with the United States Army. What he's doing over there, I don't know, but he's over there. Or you can also text me at 832-396-6525. And uh, I get right on here, click refresh, and I would be able to see if you have a question or a comment for our 
potential guest uh, this evening. I'm going to let you know a little bit about him and his book. Um, but before we do that, I just want to let you know that I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, it, it was a good Thanksgiving. It had some good days health-wise, and, and uh, the weather's been pretty nice here, a little cool. But don't you find it interesting that we need days to be able to show our appreciation, our gratitude, our thanks um, for what we've experienced? And then how the world can turn that around into something that it probably wasn't meant to be. Um, you know, we have gratitude and there's so many things that I have learned over the years that has helped me deal with some of my past. Um, you know, I anymore in my life, uh, I am just thankful that I get to open my eyes in the morning. Uh, whether I can get out of the chair or not and walk some days is is tough. Uh, the last three or four days have been great days. I've been able to step pretty good and walk pretty good. Uh, but there's days that my legs just don't want to work. And I, I trip and fall and, and fumble over and hit my head and do some, some crazy things. But it's been a good three or four days uh, health-wise. And I'm thankful that I am just still above ground and uh, able to take in some nutrition and be with family and friends and church and the people that I care about. And that's what life's all about. It's not about all those things that we try to strive for and fight for and earn and make and then pile. And, and then we end up just piling in corners around here and, and uh, wonder if we're ever going to get to it. But um, it's about the connection between people, the love that's shared, the friendship, and sometimes we just flat overlook that in each other. So I want to let you know that in the last three or four years that we've been on this program, I want to say thank you for everybody that watches, everybody that listens, everybody that writes in. It takes me about an hour after every program on Sunday night to respond to every email and text that I get to uh, try to encourage people and help people. And uh, let them know that I care. And then just talk to people. You would be shocked in this world that a lot of people don't have one person that can listen to them. And not necessarily give them advice or give them uh, the answers to every problem that they have. But just to be able to be there and listen is so important. So this coming week, as you go into a new week, as we get ready to enter into a different season. It's kind of changing seasons around here from not really fall to winter because we really don't have that here in Houston. It's kind of warm and when it gets in the 50s, I'm freezing anymore. Uh, it's not like, you know, those days in uh, southern Illinois where when it got to be winter, you knew it by the inches and the feet of snow on the ground. But uh, as we enter into a Christmas season, don't let this holiday season and even the past one of Thanksgiving, to be a force to make you do what we ought to be thankful for each and every day. So uh, I just got to, I'm looking at here, uh, we're, I'm just going to keep on fluffing because it sounds like the publisher is trying to get in touch with the guests right now to see if he can call in. So we're, we're trying to make connection. But, you know, it seems like... Um, 
during Thanksgiving time, uh, we actually remember to give gratitude. But what are we giving gratitude for? And to whom? Why can't we do that all year long of just letting people know that we care, we love, we appreciate, and we welcome all the family around the table, uh, even those that maybe we don't get along with so well. Uh, but love, acceptance, and family is really what it's all about. If you put it in things, if you put it in your wallet, in your bank account, if you put it in your health, uh, good luck, because eventually that's going to fade, fade away. And the only ones that's going to be there are the family and the friends that's around you. So uh, I just want to encourage you to take that. Uh, I, I, I pulled up something that I think that I may just kind of briefly read. It's from uh, my second book, When the Dark Clouds Come. I'll try to get the glare off here for you, When the Dark Clouds Come. And uh, it's, it's chapter seven, and it's talking about healing the pain of our past. And I open the chapter up with a quote from Walt Disney that basically says, the past can hurt you, but the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. And there's no doubt that all the situations in our life that we have endured all through our childhood has a major impact on our lives this very day. Um, I have kept some of those secrets hidden inside of me for over 40 years now. And yes, I'm 60 years old. Um, and there's still some secrets that I just haven't been able to unlock and tell everything about it, uh, to the people around me. And I periodically uh, after a conference or a training or a workshop that I'm, I do uh, around the country, I'll run across somebody that will come up to me and say, well, hey, Greg, I hear you. I had the same thing happen to me, but let me tell you what. It doesn't affect my life uh, at all. I don't even think about it anymore. I just got over it, and I don't even try to recall it. Everything's fine. And I always do the same thing, and I say the same phrase to whoever it happens to be. I said, let me tell you what. There's a little secret word. It's a Latin word that I want to share with you and what I think about that statement right now. So I always get get really close because I'm going to whisper this in your ear. What I think about that statement of it not affecting you today is this one word, baloney. There's no way that it doesn't affect you. You have to be able to go in and start unbaggaging, unloading the trunk of your emotional, mental vehicle, your brain, your spirit, of who you are, to start unloading that. If not, you're like a GPS system that keeps passing up the place that you were supposed to turn. And you know what that GPS does? It'll, it'll say recalculating. And, and it starts churning and churning and churning to find a different route. But it's never the best route to get to where you wanted to get to, to where you ultimately wanted your final destination to be. And we need to start unpacking the pain of our past. And, you know, sometimes cleaning out the wound 
of a hurt is more painful than sometimes the hurt itself. But you got to go in there and clean out, wipe out, wash out, alcohol out all of that crud in your life. So true, deep, perfect. Is there perfect healing? Uh, death, maybe, but there's no perfect healing. But good, clean healing can take effect. Am I ever going to be normal? No, this is as normal as I'm going to get, and that's not very normal. So I apologize to everybody that knows me because I am not normal by any means. But I'm not being haunted by all of the past over and over again. And um, so I encourage you that to start unloading the extra baggage that you have in your truck. Play along with me for a second. Like, like you say you're on a trip and you notice that something doesn't go right in the path that you're taking. And so you stop uh, looking at the situation and you stop looking and at the signs and hoping that you find something later that will get you back on track. And for us men, it would be so easy for us to stop and ask for directions, but we don't do that. Um, we think the next intersection we'll be able to find our way back. But sometimes in life, the answer to that is absolutely wrong. You can't. The best way to deal with the situation is going back to where you got lost, where you made the wrong turn. And sometimes we ignore the speed bumps, we ignore the signs, we ignore the detours, and we wonder why we have to backtrack for miles. And all it does is it causes us to not ever get into the mindset of where we need to be emotionally and mentally to get help. Um, I'm, I'm getting a note right now, uh, a message that they are getting. Uh, the producer is trying to get the, the guest on the program. So I'm just going to keep talking until he's on and we'll welcome him. Um, there are a few things that I, I, I really want you to understand as we go into the holiday season. Just like Thanksgiving, don't expect perfection because it's never going to be there. Don't expect the holidays to be absolutely perfect. It's never going to happen. So allow yourself a little bit of that flexibility. But mo most of all, I'm going to put the book away. Most of all, Maybe we just need to allow ourselves to not be perfect. To not be without error. Um, I'm flawed. I used to think that I was a vessel that could never be used again because there was a lot of cracks in me a lot of holes in me that when things were being filled up, it would just pour out on the ground emotionally. And I could never get it all together and do the right thing. And um, I, I truly believe that when I realized and I succumbed to the fact that I make mistakes, I'm never going to be perfect. I need help and I can't do it by myself is when I realized that, Hey, there's hope for me. It's when we think it's going to be absolutely 
smooth sailing from here on in, and then we get blindsided and we can't understand it. Um, yeah, that'd be fine. Let's go ahead and bring him in on the phone. We may not have the visual on our guest tonight, but we're going to at least have him on uh, the phone. I'm going to go ahead and give him his introduction and trust that he's going to be passed in here. I read this book uh, today. It's called Inside. Inside is by an author, Scott M. Hoffman, a native of Chicago. He's a graduate of Long Island University of Brooklyn with a BA in journalism. Uh, he worked for the city of Chicago for 35 years in the departments of purchasing and finance. But his father worked loyally for over 55 years with the organization called The Outfit. And The Outfit was basically a notorious cover for the mafia and mob family of Chicago. The book Inside, you will want to get this. I got the Kindle version. It, it was great. It was good reading. It was interesting. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating about all the insides of him as his father of being uh, in the mobster family. I'm trying to look up here and see if uh, he's with us. Bring him on in. Hi, Gregory. Hey, Scott. How are you tonight? Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry about being a little late, but something came up that just had to be taken care of. But go no, ahead. I totally, I totally understand, and no problem at all. I have just been talking, which is something that I know uh, anybody that knows me knows I can do that a lot. But I, I yep. want to get right into you. I just gave you the, your introduction of uh, that you're the author of Inside. And Scott, let me tell you what. I read the book today. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I want to know, I, I, I know your publisher sent me all these questions. I don't even have those in front of me. Because when I read the book from cover to cover, I have my own questions, if that's all right. But oh, first sure, of all, go right ahead. I tell the yeah. host the same thing. Go ahead. And I'll tell you what, Scott. I, how, did, how was life being raised by a father that was obviously involved in this outfit that was involved in the notorious mobster gangs of, of Chicago, because Chicago probably is the capital of the mobsters. Is that not true? Well, it's true. Let's say it's the Midwest capital. I mean, you have the five families in New York, and then you have other families, you know, in other cities. But as far as the Midwest, and it went beyond that, of course, everyone knew who the outfit was and, uh, you know, really respected them. They didn't have a, much of a choice. I mean, they were very violent. They could become a very violent organization. And uh, the thing with my father was he wanted me to see everything, okay, everything, and then make up my own mind of what I wanted to do. And he had the plan for Las Vegas that led to the seven hotels and seven casinos. And, of course, when I was eight years old, I started going to Las Vegas and seeing things. And that led into other seeing other things in mob life. In mob life, there's a, a rule that everyone, every mob family follows, basically. And is that, that is that uh, cops and kids are off limits. But the reason that didn't apply to me was the outfit in their highest, at their peak, 
They were earning $200 million a year from all illegal activities, and $100 million of that was coming from Las Vegas. So, of course, that didn't, that didn't apply to me because in mob life, the, one of the first things you learn is that everything is about money. The first conversation of the day is about money, and the last conversation of the day is about money. So uh, every money, like anything else, rules the operation. And um, my father's approach was, you know, he didn't want me to go in with my eyes closed if I wanted to go into the life as it's preferred. He wanted me to see everything and know everything. And everything started at a young age for me. Like I say, I was eight years old going forward. I was nine when I saw my first murder. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, Scott. And I want to let the producers know that we're not going to take a commercial break tonight. We're going to go right on straight up to the hour. I want to get every minute that I can with Scott. Uh, so, TJ, please make that happen. We're just going to continue on with no commercial break. Um Scott, when you were talking about the, uh, the plans for Las Vegas, this was before uh, the Las Vegas is the Las Vegas that we know of now. I mean, this was the olden days uh, of Vegas, correct? When Vegas yeah, just yeah, that, that's correct. This was, uh, well, Bugsy Siegel had opened up the Flamingo in 1946, and then uh, the Sands Hotel opened up around 1950, that, about that time frame. So we're talking about from that time frame forward. Las Vegas uh, didn't really have a, a strip at that point. Okay, that came along as, as time went on. So yes, it was in the beginning days, in the early days of how things started, uh, rather than what they are today. Of course, it evolved. Right now, now the book seems to be, if I've read it correctly, uh, a fictional account but about true people and events, correct? Yeah, the book is it's fictional. It's composite of real people and real events that I saw in my lifetime, of course, starting at a, you know, at a very young age and going forward. And when you mentioned, because I think there's some things you probably can't uh, mention, but when you mentioned you saw a murder at the age of nine, how did that come about, uh, Scott? How did you run into that situation, and who was involved, and how did that affect you? Well, uh, I remember I came home from grammar school. It was my ninth birthday. Now, I never had any uh, birthday parties. I never had a bicycle. I never had a kid's life. I was really living an adult life, but in a child's body with a child's brain, okay? And what had happened was I had come home, and... Um, one of the guys was one of the mobsters was there, Chuck D. English, when in the apartment with my father. And my father said to me, he says, uh, Sam Giancana has a birthday present for you. And I was very excited, of course, you know, because like I say, not having birthdays, not having presents, this was something very, you know, unusual. So I left the apartment with Chuck e. English as we went to uh, pick up Sam Giancana. And Sam Giancana was running day-to-day. My father was a consigliere for Sam Giancana after being a manager for Paul Rica. He also reported to Tony Accardo. And in 1973, when Joey Ayupa took over, it was his consigliere. So you can tell you, when I say high-ranking, you can see. So we went to Oak Park, Illinois, a very a close-in suburb, and we picked up uh, Sam Giancana. I was in the back seat. He was sitting in the front seat. And we went to a bank in Cicero, 
And I wasn't really quite sure where I was getting a birthday gift, where what was really happening. And and uh, Sam uh, opens up his uh, glove compartment of Chuck Ingles' car and takes out a twenty-two. And there's a silencer in there, and he puts the silencer on. And he's going out of the car. And this is when the bank closed at 4 o'clock, but uh, the help didn't leave till 5. There was no branch banking, of course, in those days. And banks on Friday night stayed open till 6, and on Saturday, 1 o'clock. But during the week, at 4 o'clock, they were closing. But we had, so we got in there. It was after 4, maybe 4.30, quarter to 5. And the banker was coming out. And I still was trying to figure what was really going on here, okay, because I had never seen anything like this. And uh, Sam Jane kind of goes, goes out of the car, and he puts what is called three in the hat. I mean, three socks in the back of the guy's head and then two in the chest. And then he comes back, and in the meantime, Chuck English is revving up the engine. Because even with the silencer, there is some noise. You know, it's not silencer doesn't mean totally quiet. There is some noise, but he's revving up the engine. To, you know, to try and block out any sound. And Sam Giancana comes back into the car, and uh, he un- takes off the silencer from the gun, and he says, uh, gives it to me. He says, here, get rid of it. And Chucky English says, do you, do you really want him to get rid of it? I mean, you know, he's a kid. And Sam Giancana says, well, he's got to learn. And the reason Sam Giancana was shooting this guy, this guy had given Sam Giancana some bad financial advice, okay? And so now we're going home, and I've, I, in my winter coat, I've got a silencer. I'm trying to think, what do I do with this silencer? So when I get home, I go home, and I had a key. Cause I was a responsible kid, so they gave me a key when I was young. And I open up the door, and I'm still thinking about it. And we had a newspaper, the Chicago Daily News, which we used to get. I figure, okay, I'm just going to wrap it up. And in the morning before school, I'll go to, uh, it was this business that not far from me that had a dumpster. And I'll just put it in, you know, in the dumpster. So that's what I did. I wrapped it up. Next morning, I get up real early, maybe five in the morning. And I go out and I take the silencer and I, you know, put it in the dumpster. I come back home. My father's up and I open up the door and he's standing there and he says, um, how was your birthday party last night with Sam Giancana? How'd you like the gift? And I and I said to him, I said, you knew? And he said, yeah, yeah, I knew all about it. So he says, uh, so I said to him, well, I said, it wasn't really what I expected as a, as a birthday gift. And my father said to me, remember when I told you you're going to see everything? This is what you got to see. This is what the life is about. And it was it was pretty scary to be honest with you because I was a kid. You know what I mean? I'd never seen anything like that, and it was an unusual shooting because normally, most time mob shootings it's over juice loan money, it's over other things. You know, not giving someone bad advice. But Sam Giancana was a guy that you just didn't give bad advice to, and that's what triggered everything. Was this the first time that you realized, uh, Scott, that your dad was involved in the illegal side of this world? Um, that it obviously no, that was not really the first time, Gregory. And the first time was, was the, uh, really when I was about eight and a half years old. There was these two uh, guys, uh, one named Tony, one named Mikey. They were both brothers. They lived on Taylor Street, which was a, in those days a predominantly Italian neighborhood. And he had a, a mob street crew from Taylor Street. 
but they work for a uh, another uh, operation in, in uh, you know in out in the suburbs, western a western suburb, and um, they invited my father and they said bring Scott along and it was at a church and uh, it was you know a, like a dinner and there was going to be a raffle and after the dinner the raffle started with the five dollar gift but before that when we got to the church Tony and Mikey were outside and they said hello and the priest came by. And the priest and Tony said to the priest, Can you bless my ticket for the drawing? The main drawing, the big drawing was fifty dollars in those days. And this must have probably been like nineteen fifty seven around that time frame. And the priest said, Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll bless it, sir, of course. He said, You know, God'll be on your side. And Gregory, I want you to remember number six. Remember that number six, okay? Number six, okay. Remember number six. So we go into church, and that you know we have the dinner, and the and they afterwards uh, the assistant priest and the priest come out, and they have this machine that you just turn like the handle and crank it, and they have balls in there uh, look like ping pong balls with numbers, and they start drawing the five dollar prizes, the ten, the fifteen, and then the priest says, okay, we're going to take a break, okay, so they take the machine, they go and leave it in the kitchen. And uh, then they come back a little bit later, and they, they said, okay, well, now we're going to draw the grand prize. And they had brought the machine that had been in the kitchen, and now we're going to draw the grand prize. And the priest turns his head, and he puts his hand in the machine and starts to, uh, by hand, starts moving the balls around. And he looks away, and he says, I have to be honest, God is watching me. Okay, and in those days, if a priest told you something like a cop, a school teacher, you believed it. Okay. The crowd was laughing a little bit. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he pulls out. He said, I have the winning ball in my hand right now. And then he looks and pulls it out. And it's number six. Okay. So my father whispers in my ear. He says, I'll tell you later how this works. Yeah. In the meantime, okay, I'm going to, I told my dad I have to go to the bathroom. He said, told me we're, you know, in the bathroom was in the back. Because he had been in the church before. And I go in the back. And I see uh, Tony and Mikey and the priest, and I see the, the uh, Tony uh, Mikey give the priest ten dollars, and they kept the other two twenties to forty dollars. So I go to the bathroom and I come back, and uh, we stay a little while longer, and then we say our goodbyes, and they're glad to see us, and we go in the car. And my father said they used they used the cold ball trick, and I said, well, what's the cold ball trick? He said, remember when the priest left the card, the ticket, and it was number six. I said, yeah, I remember. He saw it, number six. What he did was he took the ball out, number six, put it in the freezer, okay, left it in the freezer, and when it came time for the big main drawing, he went back and he put that ball in, in with all the others, but it was frozen. So when he put his hand in there, he's feeling for the cold ball, okay? And once he felt the cold ball, he knew he had number six. And that's why he pulled out number six. So it was all fixed. It was all rigged. And I said to myself, but does this happen much? And he says, yeah, this will happen. He says, we're wise guys. He says, we're uh, guys are involved in the life. He said, the soldiers, as they were called those days before the term wise guys. He says, yeah. He says, this is done. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, holy cow, here's a, a priest doing something like that. And, yeah, that's, that's, that was my first really introduction the mob life of what really could go on. 
Yeah, and that, you know, I, I think because some of my favorite movies are uh, the ones that involves the mafia, you know, The Godfather, The Goodfellas, yeah. and The Irishman. That was a wonderful uh, uh, show, and uh, you know, there's several others. Um, and they they kind of glamorize it, uh, but it's nothing like that, or is it? Um, no, no. I don't mean to interrupt you. I, I was just waiting. Uh, no, especially with the Irishman. No, no. That, I knew Frank Theron. I'd been in his company quite a bit, a number of times. In fact, I met him shortly in 1957, right when Jimmy Hoffa took over as union president. My father was very close with Jimmy Hoffa because when Jimmy, he'd met Jimmy Hoffa many, many years before. And when Jimmy Hoffa ran for his first uh, office of his local, I think it was like secretary, treasurer, something, something like that, and he gave Jimmy Hoffa some money. I think he gave him like $150, which is a lot of money. Because Jimmy Hoffa said, if I had money, I could run. So, yeah, I had met Theron. And Theron was the type of guy, Frank Theron was the type of guy who embellished things. He told me in World War II how much he, how he killed so many Germans. And, you know, I was, like I say, about nine years old when I met him. And then, then he's telling me later on, this is, a, you know, a few years later, after the Kennedy assassination, how he was involved getting the rifle. Well, he had no involvement with getting the rifle, getting it to Lee Harvey Oswald, not at all. My father was the one who bought it at Klein's a sporting goods store because he knew Jack Ruby. He had gotten Jack Ruby a job. He had been from the neighborhood. He knew Ruby very well because I asked Frank Theron, I said, oh, you, you got the rifle? You know, this is, you know, like I said, I was already in high school. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said to him, well, what was uh, Jack Ruby's real name? He said, well, Jack Ruby. And that's not, I knew it was a lie. It wasn't true because Jack Ruby's real name was Jack, Jacob Leon Rubenstein. Okay. And he left the neighborhood in 1949, but he knew my father. My father got him a job on the south side of, uh, downtown area, the South Loop, as they call it, because the train goes around the top of an uh, elevated train loop downtown. So everyone refers to downtown as the Loop. And that's yeah. where the peep shows were. Uh, you know, the strip clubs, the adult bookstores. So, yeah, Ruby and my father, you know, were close and knew each other. And that's when I knew Frank Ferron, like I say, wasn't exactly truthful. You know, he would yeah. embellish. He talked about crazy Joey Gallo's murder. I know who, who actually was a shooter was. So, no, you know, like I always tell people that the movies and television shows are done expertly they do it very well but it's strictly entertainment there's very little truth in these stories yeah i knew the good fellows i knew the real good fellows i can tell you that that was uh you know again because i went to college and that's when i went to college and i had to come up with money for room and board because i had an academic scholarship i had to come up with money for room and board and i worked in my social club colombo lucchese banano and lucchese was where i met henry hill the restaurant was called The Suite. It was in Queens near Forest Hill. So, yeah, I knew all the real good fellows. I knew the real Sopranos. So, like I say, I knew them from the other side. I remember in 1998, I was in California at a party, and Ray Liotta comes in with a couple of his friends, a couple of actors, and everyone says, oh, there's Ray Liotta. And, of course, he played Henry Hill in the movie. Yeah. He was a smoker, Ray Liotta, and he went, uh, you know, he went outside near a garden. He had this gold compact with, you know, cigarettes in it. And I went out, I waited till I could get them kind of like one-on-one. -on -one. And I went out to, oh, Mr. Leota, I enjoy your movies and everything. Then I said, uh, 
what do you think of Henry? And he says, Henry who? And I says, well, Henry Hill, you know, guy you played in that movie, Goodfellas. He said, he was a scary guy. He says, how do you know Henry? So I wasn't going to tell him how I knew Henry, you know, that I worked for Henry in the restaurant. And I just said, oh, I've just been passing. He said, yeah, he was, he was scary. And I said, well, you look like you were friendly with him in the um, publicity photos, Henry smiling. He says, yeah, I had to do that. But he said, I was kind of afraid of the guy. And here's Ray Liotta, always plays these tough guys in the movies and wasn't such a tough guy in real life. Yeah. Now you you brought the subject up, and I want to want to pounce on it if you don't mind, because this being uh, the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, and this book that just came out, uh, I believe it's called "The Final Witness" from uh, one of the last surviving Secret Service. Oh uh, yeah, Paul Landis. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any doubt in your mind that? Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't alone in the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Well, let's, let's, like I always tell people, I know from the mob side what happened and everything. It's a long, long story. You would need a lot of shows more than tonight to cover it, of really how it started. And all had to do with the casino, Del Neva, and South Lake Tahoe, which is the Lake Tahoe, yeah. Yeah, that's how it all started between the Kennedys and the outfits and Eventually went bad from there later on, of course, when Kennedy got, when John Kennedy got, uh, uh, became president of the United States, got elected. And like I tell people this way, if you don't know what the, all the papers are concealed, of course, it's the final ballistic report you'd have to look at to see. Okay. Because at the time, uh, the FBI said they had all the bullets. Or from the gun, uh, the rifle of Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. There was no second shooter. In fact, Paul Landis, five days afterwards, uh, he said, uh, yeah, it was, he just heard two shots and that, he didn't say anything about a bullet that he found or anything. And Clint Hill, who was the lead agent, who jumped on the car after the shooting, of course, in 2014, he sent out an email, I guess, to Landis and maybe some other people saying that what Landis was saying wasn't true, okay? Because all of a sudden, Landis is changing the story from his report. So without the final ballistic, if there was a second shooter, if there was, and I'm not saying there was or there wasn't, uh, the question is, where's the other bullet? Because they didn't know the rifle, okay? They did not know what a, what uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was using, where he got it, what type of rifle. So if there's other bullets, uh, where are they? But without seeing a final ballistic report, you do not know. Okay, there was a, a initial ballistic report that was given to the Warren Commission, but I'd want to see the final ballistic report and see if there's any other bullets. Okay, right. And that's what I tell people. Without that final ballistic report, it's still questionable. Was there anybody else? So. With your experience, with your inside information being there with dad and listening and hearing and watching and experiencing, um, and what was going on in Lake Tahoe with this casino and the Kennedys promising all these things, and they end up pretty well reneging on everything. Yeah, it's uh, everything. And when Robert Kennedy got involved uh, and then started doing these uh, strike forces, yeah. Uh, was that the beginning of his end <laughs> when 
everything went sour and the mafia just said, hey, wait, uh, we're going to have to take out more than one. Sam Giancana was probably at his worst moment that I've had ever seen him during that time period. He was extremely, extremely angry at that point. And he was the one, because Chicago had a seat on the crime, uh, mafia commission, mob commission, and they still do. It's just they're represented by the Genovese crime family, okay? And he was the one who pushed, he was the one who pushed for uh, the assassination of John Kennedy. And the reason he really pushed, not only was he mad at John Kennedy and Corporal Robert Kennedy was reneging on everything, and it all started after the inauguration when uh, Sam Giancana told Frank Sinatra, this was like in late February, said, what's going on? What's going on with Calneva? And Frank says, okay, I'll call. And he, and he, he says, I got, I got John's private number, okay? And he calls the private number, and the number had been switched to Robert Kennedy's office. And Robert and the secretary said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Frank Sinatra. I want to speak with uh, President Kennedy. And he, he says, well, this is Robert Kennedy's office. And, and who are you again? He says, listen, this is who I am. And he's saying, I've got you under my skin. You know, it's fun. He says, you really are Frank Sinatra. He says, yeah, I told you that. And he said, well, I'll give the message to Mr. Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy never returned any calls that Frank made, not only that day, other times uh, they got him. Sam Giancana's girlfriend was sent to the White House uh, later on to have an affair with John Kennedy. But nothing ever moved them once he uh, you know, like I say, once the Kennedys got power, like my father never liked the casino. He told me later, and he went along with everything, of course, because he knew who he was dealing with. But he would tell me later, he would say, you know, you can't trust politicians. They'll, they'll mm-hmm. promise you everything, and once they get in, they forget who you are. But in Sam Giancana's case, he was not a guy you wanted to forget. And he was the one who pushed everything. It had nothing to do with Jimmy Hoffa. I know who, I know who the order was given to. And it had nothing to do with Jimmy Harper uh, authorizing it. Some historians have said that. Some of these people that say things, what they know, you, you put in a symbol and still have room. So, but it, it, was, it was all about the reneging and what the Kennedys didn't do. That's what triggered everything. Was the uh, Martin Luther King assassination involved in any of uh, the underground crime? No, they really, they really didn't have anything to do with that. You know what I mean? That was, you know, that was not something that they were really interested in. The, the main thing was getting rid of Robert Kennedy because when Lyndon Johnson took over, Robert Kennedy, who didn't like Lyndon Johnson, didn't want him on the ticket at all. Okay, and had told Frank Sinatra that he really was didn't want him. He wanted Stuart Symington or someone else. He never wanted Johnson. It was the uh, the father who said, we need Johnson, and that's why Johnson in 1960 uh, campaigned in three states, Texas, Louisiana, and Georgia, and Kennedy won those three states. That's where Johnson campaigned, but once the Kennedy became in, Johnson was sent all over the world, but he really had no idea about the Vietnam advisors. He didn't know anything really about any. He was like Harry Truman, who didn't know about the Manhattan Project. Johnson really didn't know anything until you know, the assassination, but Johnson, the reason uh, it was Johnson 
was that uh, he put in Ramsey Clark, Tom Clark's son. Tom Clark was a U.S. Supreme Court, but Ramsey Clark didn't have any agenda, okay? So that, you know, really what it was all about to get rid of Robert Kennedy at that point. As my father said on that day, and that day happens to be my birthday, November 22nd, okay? My father says, well, maybe we got the wrong Kennedy. But my father knew more and would tell me more later on, not that day. Is the is the mafia the the underground? I mean, is is the uh, this group that your dad worked for? Are they still? Yes, in they are. They are. In fact, in 2022, they signed, uh, let us say, a working arrangement, a business venture with Kansas City Mob, who reported to uh, Chicago and with Philadelphia. So the three of them have gone into a joint venture. There's four, four three crews still left, but things have changed dramatically, obviously, over the years. I mean, they don't have the politicians who would, you know, uh, do things for them, the corrupt politicians, the corrupt judges, really corrupt law enforcement. Those days are all gone. In fact, right now, the, I know who's, who's running the day-to-day operations uh, of the four crews, who would be, you know, considered the, the term, used to always be the Don, because that's how it was in, in Sicily, where the mob started. Right. After the movie Godfather, even wise guys would, would call the Don the Godfather. Well, we'll say the Godfather of Chicago. Uh, he told everybody, don't kill anybody, and if anybody owns any money, any juiced money, anything like any, any money from anything that is owed, just write it off as a bad debt. And I know if my father was alive, he'd say, what are we running, a nonprofit organization? Was it the Little Sisters of the Poor? You know? I mean, you know, he would, he would be quite upset if he was alive, you know? So, yes, they're still around. Uh, they're still what, what's, what's, their their major, what's their major money producer then? Where, where do they get their funds? Where, what part of the well, business world are they in? Well, basically, it's, it's still, uh, of course, Drug trafficking is, was always big. It always was big. That's still, that's still big. And also, there's the money laundering in legitimate businesses, cleaning industry, construction, uh, demolition companies, where they're money laundering what they get from drugs, and uh, you know other illegal activities that they might ha- still be involved with, maybe some offshore gambling in some countries. That caused a rift between uh, Tony Accardo and... Um, Sam Giancana, going back to 1949 when I was one year old. My father had talked to uh, Sam Giancana at that time about well, about expanding the businesses. How are we going to expand the business? And my father said, well, we can expand gambling into South America and Iran. My father and Sam Giancana said, what do you mean Iran? You know, that was like totally a shock to him. He says, yeah. So, he, so Sam Giancana says, well, what are we, how are we going to use, what hook are we going to use? And he says, you got to remember, my father said, the Shah of Iran wants the kids to go to school in America, so we'll tell the Shah of Iran that we'll protect his kids if we can open up, you know, for opening up gambling there. And the Shah of Iran, my father met with a representative in New York for the Shah, from the Shah of Iran, and he was all for gambling. So he come, my father comes back, he talks with Sam Giancana, and he tells Sam Giancana, I want to send a geologist uh, to Iran, and we're going to pick oil, okay, the oil well, the ones that are good producers will, try, will take five of them instead of just taking cash now, and that'll make you a multimillionaire, 
over you know over some time. It'll be a pretty quick time because the oil prices were you know slowly starting to go up. And but no, Sam Giancana said no, no, I want the money. So the idea to get the oil wells, which would have been very good for Sam Giancana, no, he 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 wanted the money in his hand right away. But that caused a rift with him and Tony Accardo because he was supposed to pay tribute. And tribute is he had to kick up money to the uh, godfather, let us say. And right. he never told Tony Accardo about this operation. That didn't come out till much later. And Tony Accardo would ask me, was your father involved? And I said, ah, I was only one year old, Tony. I said, I can't tell you. I knew he was, but I had to tell him that. Scott, we only got a, we got a minute or two uh, left of and it's gone by fast. I want to have you back if you wouldn't mind. I'd, I'd love to have you back yeah. where we can talk more. Um, is there something that would absolutely shock me if you told me with your wisdom and, it, and intelligence of what's happened on the inside of saying, hey, you don't know, but the underground is involved in this? What would that be that would be the most shocking thing that would uh, – knock me off my stool tonight from a uh, a native Illinoisan myself. Oh, congratulations. In that would shock me? Probably uh, the control of the unions, uh, the uh, control of the unions of Hollywood. The outfit had oh. control of the unions of Hollywood. And when I met Marilyn Monroe, and of course we don't have time to talk about that, I knew how she got the role of, in the movie Some Like It Hot with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. Right. And Jack Lemon, who had won the Academy Award for his performance in Mr. Roberts, you know, earlier, a few years earlier, had done summer stock with Shirley MacLaine. And he had gone, he knew Billy Wilder, the director. And Billy Wilder, he told her, he said, I like Shirley MacLaine in the movie to play the part that Marilyn Monroe played. And he, he was all for it, Billy Wilder. But there was a guy who was a major investor and, uh, had ties with Sam Giancana, and he talked with Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana called my father. My father called Sidney Korsak, who was a lawyer who monitored union activities, especially uh, Hollywood activities. And uh, the guy, the investor, wanted Marilyn Monroe in instead, okay, instead of anybody else. He didn't even know it was Shirley MacLaine, but anybody else. And, of course, uh, Sidney Korsak made that phone call, you know, to the production company, and uh, Marilyn Monroe was given a screen test. And that was all bold because she was going to get the role, but she was given a screen test, and she thought her agent got her the job. When I met her, and she told me, but I said, really, I really enjoyed some like it. I was 12 and a half years old when I met her, and, and, she, and I said, it was a great movie. I really enjoyed it in 1959, and she said, yeah, that was a lot of fun working with Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, and he never would have got the role if it wasn't for the outfit control of the union, because basically they could stop a movie just like they could stop anything else. They could shut a city down if they wanted to. I mean, you know, the uh, Teamster drivers wouldn't deliver food or medicine. And it was the same thing with the unions. They controlled, uh, you know, who got what. I mean, when Frank Sinatra was having his voice problems, that's another story. And got yeah. into the movie, uh, uh, you know, From Here to Eternity. Yeah, my father and Johnny Roselli were involved with that. So, wow. yeah, they controlled that. They could, they could put, they could make someone a star, and they could also end someone's career. And they really I, helped Marilyn Monroe 
with that with that uh, movie, you know, because that kind of really boosted her from that point forward. So, you know, it was already very popular, but she was boosted. I mean, my grandfather uh, was the photographer who shot her in the 1953 uh, Playboy first edition. If you go online and look at it, you'll see. And then the reason that you have to use my father and my grandfather was because in those days, there was no airbrush. My grandfather, by hand, would put in the flesh tones on the negatives. So when the negatives were developed, what you saw was actual, the person's actual skin tone. If you look at it online, you'll see her face or, or the breast part that she's showing, her arms, legs. It all looks natural to the reader. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there was a lot going on, but it was to control the, uh, the union, uh, especially for Hollywood. That was, that was the main thing because they could That's get amazing. anything they wanted. Hey, Scott, they're telling me we got to go. I'll tell you what, I'm going to, yeah, go ahead and put the cover of the book up, uh, TJ, at the BBS radio station so we can see it. If you want to get a copy of this book, this is it, Inside by Scott M. Hoffman. Make sure you put the M there, the middle initial, that to get you straight to that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the other places that sells books online. You'll want to read this. And, Scott, if it would be all right, is there any way that we can have you come back in a couple weeks? I'll talk to your uh, publicist. I would love yeah, to. And, and I want to apologize for coming in a little bit later. I'm sorry. No, but. that's called live live radio. We're fine. But thank you so much. Get this book, folks. Have it read. And then you're going to want to call back in. In two or three weeks, I'll let you know when we read books. Yeah, please call, speak with the representative. Thank you so much. It was very nice. And thank you, listeners, for being uh, listening to me. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, BBS Radio Station, for hanging with me and being patient. We appreciate it. Have an awesome week. And we always want to let you know that no matter what happens to you, there's always, always hope. We'll see you next week right here, live from Houston. God bless. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.